It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Hitting Hard with John Chuckery here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. Today on the show, what should the Falcons do with their second and third round picks? Could Strider be in line to break a record? And we'll recap WrestleMania. It's all next. It's Hitting Hard with John Chuckery, Locked On Sports Atlanta. This is Hitting Hard with John Chuckery, part of Locked On Sports Atlanta. And it starts now. Hitting Hard is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports book of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit fanduel.com slash locked on today to get started. We ask you to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to all of your podcasts. Get the latest episodes of Hitting Hard as soon as they become available. And then give me a follow on my personal Twitter page at JMCH316. So we've talked a lot about the first round draft pick at number eight that the Atlanta Falcons have and what they should do with this. Now, I'm in the camp of they need to go get an edge rusher. You you can't draft and have too many pass rushers. You can't draft and have too many guys that sack the quarterback. But when you look at second and third round picks, and the Falcons draft number 44 in the second round uh, overall pick, um, number 75 with the, the number 75 overall pick in the third round, what should the Falcons do? with all of that. Now, if I go off the premise that the Falcons take an edge player with that first round pick, if the Falcons don't take an edge player, if they take a corner at number eight, then they should take an edge player at number 44 and no less than that, whatever that player is. If they draft edge, then I do think that cornerback is really in play at number 44. Now, a couple of the names, I mean, I do think Devin Witherspoon is going to go first round. Cam Smith, Christian Gonzalez, Joey Porter Jr., and Keely Ringo, and probably even Deontay Banks. Those guys are probably all first round picks. But you look at Emmanuel Forbes, Eli Ricks, Clark Phillips III, Garrett Williams, Jalen Jones. I think that those are all guys that are in that second round group. So while you may not have the top corner, you know, or one of the top corners, because I do think that they will be a pretty good run on corners in that first round. Especially as you get through the middle of the draft and toward the bottom end of the draft, I think they'll be a pretty good run on corner. Corner is a premium position now in the NFL. You you can't have, again, you can't have too many guys that cover players. Why? Because this is where this covered sack thing is such a mythology. When you have three, four, five guys that are all running out in patterns, you can't have too many guys to cover them. And you're never going to have enough guys to cover everybody in NFL offense. It's not 1978 where you have two guys that go out in a pattern and maybe a third guy as a tight end or a running back that catches balls out of the backfield or whatever in a, in a short route. It's not 1978 where you only have to match up with a couple of guys. You have three, four, five guys at a time that are all running out in patterns. So coverage sacks, you're never going to have enough guys that can cover everybody on the football field. So I obviously, if if it's not a edge player at number eight, then I want the next best available edge player 
And again, I think it makes a lot of sense to draft edge at eight because as you start to chip away in those, you know, draft prospects, because look, there's going to be a run on those guys. There always is a run on those guys. But you figure Anderson, Wilson, Van Ness, um, you know, Nolan Smith, those are going to be guys that are going to be drafted probably fairly early. And you might even see guys like Andre Carter uh, the second, B.J. Ojolari. If those guys aren't drafted in the end of the first round, they probably will be high second round picks. So I do think that once you start to chip away at the edge class and the prospects that are going to be there, that it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. That's why I want the best player at number eight that sacks the quarterback, right? We talk about best player available. Well, the best player available needs to be able to sack the quarterback, bar none, okay? But I do like the cornerback class. I do think that cornerback is a deep position. Even if you don't get one of those top guys, I do think that's a deep position. The other thing that I think will be in play, believe it or not, when you come second to third round, will be the wide receiver position. That I do think that the Falcons are looking to draft a young wide receiver and develop him. Now, look, I, I know, and again, I've seen some mocks that say even Jackson Smith and Jigba, if they draft Jackson Smith and Jigba at number eight, they should burn down Flowery Branch. I mean, literally burn down Flowery Branch. Because at, at this point, we'd have no clue of what we're doing. But I could see second round, third round. I definitely see wide receiver being in play. Now, I would think that Quentin Johnson and Jordan Addison and probably Zay Flowers and Jackson Smith and Jigba, those guys are probably all first or very high second round picks when all is said and done. But maybe a Jalen Hyatt falls. Maybe a Jalen Hyatt, excuse me, falls. Maybe a Cedric Tillman um, falls, Parker Washington. I mean, there are, I think that there will be a decent crop of wide receivers, even sort of high in the second round that the Falcons will have a chance to pick from. So I definitely think that cornerback wide receiver is definitely in play. What I would love, what I would personally love is to go edge player at number eight and then draft either second or third round draft another interior offensive lineman. I, I would really like to see interior offensive line be drafted in this and, and fairly high. Like if you told me that they went edge at number eight and they went interior line, guard or center at number 44, wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Because I still think that those are the two key positions that could look to be upgraded. You know, obviously our left guard is a mishmash of different people, whether it's Matt Hennessy, whether it's Jalen Mayfield, whether it's um, Hinton. I mean, it's just a real mishmash of players that are there right now on the roster. And we again, maybe, maybe they sign Elijah Wilkinson at some point here, but it, it's a real mishmash of players when you talk about left guard. And I'm not 100% sold on our centers. You know, both Hennessy and Dolman are two undersized guys that either one of those guys, I think they all profile the same, but obviously Dolman played a little bit better through the second half of last year, but I still don't have as much confidence in Drew Dolman. I'll have to see it to believe it. Okay. Now, again, the coaching staff, they've seen all these guys that they, they, you know, watch every practice that they have. Again, I guess if they believe in, 
endowment or guys or a Hennessy, then then we'll have to take their word for it. But I wouldn't mind seeing another young guy with even some higher draft capital than what Dalman or Hennessy were picked at to be in the mix for either a guard position or the center spot. Just create more competition and see what you can develop from one of those guys. But I do think that corner, if I had to pick that corner might be the number one pick, either eight or 44. One of those spots I do think is going to be addressed by cornerback. I want edge first and foremost. I could sit, I could, I could settle for a corner at number 44, and then I'll look at interior offensive line for my third round. Truthfully, you know, running backs, wide receivers, I can find those guys, right? Right. We had a running back that was a fifth round pick that was a thousand yard running back, right? We can find some of those guys. You can find some of those guys through the fourth, fifth round, even drafting your quarterback, even drafting a uh, a Hendon Hooker if he's still there or a Stetson Bennett or players like that. You can still find some value in all that. But I think that corner, if it's not in play for number eight, I definitely think at number 44. And my wish would be interior offensive line, center or guard, maybe in that second to third round when all is said and done. All right, let's talk about our friends over at FanDuel as we're wrapping up the March Madness tournament and headed right toward NBA playoff action as this is the last week of the NBA season. FanDuel is America's number one sports bet, and they've got you covered. New customers can get in on the action and claim your no-sweat first bet where you can win as much as $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, super easy to use. You can bet on everything from money lines to prop bets to who's going to win, everything in between. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a bigger payout with the same game parlay. So head to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N and claim your no sweat first bet where if your first bet doesn't win, you can claim as much as $1,000 in bonus bets when that first bet doesn't win. FanDuel.com slash locked on. Head to the website, learn more, make every moment worth FanDuel, the official sportsbook betting partner of the NBA. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. So could Spencer Strider be in line to set a record? What record am I talking about? I'm talking about the single season strikeout record for the Atlanta Braves. Now, let, let's preface this when, when we say this, okay? Uh, and by the way, Strider does have the highest strikeouts per nine innings ever for a Braves pitcher, 13 and a half last year. Now, when you look at the single season strikeout totals, for the Braves as a franchise, right? This is including Boston, Milwaukee, and Atlanta, okay? So you have Charlie Buffington, right? From 1884 is number one with 417 strikeouts. 
I'm guessing he pitched about 450 innings because that's what those guys did back then. Jim Whitney is number two at eight uh, with in 1883 with 345 strikeouts. And then Jordan Clarkson, who is a Hall of Fame pitcher, by the way, 1889 with 284. So let's eliminate the 19th century, literally the 19th century players. And let's focus on more modern 20th century and 21st century types of players. Okay. Smoltzy has the record for the Atlanta Braves franchise, as far as the Atlanta Braves go. Um, but he's fourth overall on the Braves all-time franchise list. 276 strikeouts. Um, Jim Whitney, who is also had in 1884, he had 270 strikeouts. Then Nuxi has the number six and number seven strikeout totals for a season, 262 and 77, 248 and 78. So if we just focus on modern day. Smoltzy's at 276 and 96. Negro's at 262 and 77. And Nuxie's also in 78 at 248. Do I think that Spencer Strider could definitely break a record like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if Strider gets to 180 innings, I definitely think that he could break that 276 mark that, that Smoltzy has. And that is well within grasp. I'll even ask this question. Okay, if there was a way for Spencer Strider to get to 200 innings, and I know that in today's modern baseball, you know, we talk about all of these records that are not likely to fall or or milestones that are not likely to be reached. Right. We talk about 300 wins and different things like that. Right. Pitchers winning not just 300 games, but pitchers pitching 200 innings a year is something that we don't see a whole lot of, right? But if Strider could find a way, and I think that this is very doable, if he could find a way to be 180, 200 innings, could he be a 300 strikeout pitcher? Now, 300 strikeouts was a, a little bit more regular in the 70s and 80s to 90s, right? We saw J.R. Richards, Sandy Koufax, Nolan Ryan do that, and then Randy Johnson, I think Kurt Schilling had a year. I think Pedro uh, had a year. Chris Sale has been a 300 strikeout pitcher, right? So there are modern guys that are, you know, not not 1884 types of players. The Ryans and the Nolan, the Nolan Ryans and, and you know, Koufax and J.R. Richard and Randy Johnson, guys like that that are more modern types of pitchers. I wonder if Strider, if he couldn't find a way to pitch 180 to 200 innings, couldn't be a 300 strikeout pitcher. Obviously, he's got immense swing and miss stuff. Again, last year, he set the Braves franchise record with 13 and a half strikeouts per nine innings. And you figure he had nine strikeouts in six innings the other day. I don't think there's anything. I, I think that now that he's got everything kind of figured out, and look, there'll be bumps and stuff like that on the road, on the way, you know, on this kind of journey that he's got. There's always going to be a pothole or two that eventually some of the league will catch up. But Strider's stuff is so magnificent that it's such good swing and miss stuff, and that plays in to modern-era baseball. The, the fact is, is that modern-era baseball isn't about contact. It's about hitting the ball as hard as you can, hitting the ball out of the park as far as you can, and everything else be damned. Walks, patience, batting average, moving a runner along, Hitting, hitting the other, hitting the other way, 
putting a ball to the wall to hit a double. That's all by the wayside now that we don't have the, the, the league isn't filled up with the Tony Gwynn's and the Rod Carew's and all that kind of stuff anymore. Right. Guys are not in that mindset. Guys are exit velocity. How far can I hit it? And they'll take the sacrifice of striking out because everybody strikes out now. Right. I mean, if you're not 140, 150 strikeouts as a batter, that's just kind of normal in today's baseball. But you look at Strider, who, if he if he pitched 180 innings, I don't think there's any doubt that he wouldn't have 200 more than 276 strikeouts in a season, and that's what the record is for for Smoltzy, 276 with the Braves. If we don't count 19th century Braves franchise record, so could Strider even be a 300 strikeout pitcher? I don't see why not. He's got the stuff for it. He's got all the swing and miss stuff. It plays into what modern baseball is. Everything about Strider. And, and look, Strider's one of these guys that wants the ball, right? Strider's, I don't think Strider is one of these guys that is a five-inning just type of pitcher. I think Strider's one of those guys that you give the ball to and you feel like your bullpen has a minimal amount of work to be done, right? I think he can be a six to maybe even seven-inning type of pitcher. I don't know that he's necessarily an innings eater because nobody's an innings eater nowadays. And you're just trying to find at least six innings out of a starter. But if you figure if he gets 30 starts and he pitches six innings to start, he's going to have 180 innings. I don't think 276 strikeouts is all that unfathomable. I don't, I don't think that that's a lofty goal to try to hit. So we talked about last year at the start of the season that I thought that the Braves would set their franchise record for strikeouts by a pitching staff. Well, they did that. And obviously Strider was one of those guys that he came up and obviously he just, he took over, you know, uh, that, that staff and just, he was a 200 strikeout pitcher. Now I want to see, honestly, I want to see if he could be a 300 strikeout guy. If he could be a modern day, Randy Johnson, Nolan Ryan, J.R. Richard, Chris Sale kind of pitcher that just racks up strikeout after strikeout after strikeout. Now, again, J.R. Richard, Nolan Ryan, those are guys that would pitch 300 innings. Right. I mean, back in the old days of, you know, hand a guy a baseball. And if he's your starter, you expect him to pitch seven, eight, nine innings out there and, and complete a whole bunch of games. Not expecting him to do that. But even at six innings a start and he gets, say, 30, 32 starts, he could certainly be in that 276 mark. So watch out for that particular number when it comes to Spencer Strider as he chases down potentially the all time strikeout record. I certainly think that the 276 is very doable. And if he beats John Smoltz's record, look, he could be potentially a 300 strikeout guy when all is said and done. All right, let's talk about our friends over at Built Bar as the obviously the tournament wrapping up here tonight. But you can still get in on the action at BuiltMarchMadness.com and vote for your favorite bar or puff. Go to BuiltMarchMadness.com, vote for your favorite bar or puff, no matter what type it is out there. And then you could be registered to win a box of Built Bars. We're going to give 50 Lucky Locked On listeners a free box of Built Bars. And one fan, one Lucky Locked On fan, is going to win a 12-month subscription where you're going to have Built Bars delivered right to your home. So head to BuiltMarchMadness.com today. Vote for your favorite bar or puff, four grams of sugar, 130 calories, 17 grams of protein, 
Whether you want the texture and the flavor of the protein-infused marshmallow puffs, whether you want traditional protein bars as is, vote for your favorites today at BuiltMarchMadness.com. Check out, obviously, at Built.com all of the selection of all the different protein bars that they have available, but register to win a free box of Built Bars or that 12-month subscription by going to Built.com today and BuiltMarchMadness.com. Vote for your favorites. Well, let's recap uh, WrestleMania here. It was, listen, night one was certainly better than night number two. You had a plethora of matches in night number one that were fantastic when all was said and done. You had John Cena versus Austin Theory. I thought that was a really good match. That was a great opener on night one. And look, the right guy won. You know, I, I know a lot of people were upset that John Cena got pinned, but you have to look at the fact of putting Austin Theory over and the fact that Austin Theory had to cheat to win, right? That's what he does. He's a heel. I have no problem with the result of this match. It didn't, it didn't make as much sense from a business perspective to have John Cena pin Austin Theory because a lot of people thought that that was what was going to happen. I like the idea that, that Theory pinned him and he had to cheat to do it. I got no issue with, with all of that that went on. Um, Logan Paul, obviously, is another guy. Seth Rollins pinned Logan Paul, but Logan Paul has definitely made a name for himself in the WWE. Again, he's only had like four, maybe five matches at most, but you always know he's going to do something crazy, and he gets the business. I, I give Logan Paul a lot of credit. He has really adapted to what wrestling is, and he gets the business aspect of it. He gets the idea of selling. He gets the idea of, again, the modern type of match with the high spots and different things like that. So I give Logan Paul all the credit. He may have lost at WrestleMania, and, and it made sense to have Seth, uh, Seth Rollins pin him, but I give Logan Paul all the credit uh, in the world. I really did like the Rey Mysterio, Dominic Mysterio, and I didn't know how I would feel about this angle leading into it. But last Friday, when Mysterio finally, when Ray Mysterio finally hit Dominic, that was a massive crowd pop. That's the thing that everybody had been waiting for. And then he makes the match. I really liked that whole angle out there. And I didn't know how I'd like this match, but I thought it was a great spot when uh, Ray pulled off his belt and started spanking Dominic. Like that was a great spot. But they did a really good job, and you could see that Dominic's got a little bit of that Ray in him. I mean, obviously, look, he's a different kind of kid and a different kind of athlete, and he's a much bigger um, kid. But you can see that he's got some of that that he's learned from his old man. So I thought that that was a really good match and a really well-done angle. Then we get to what was the highlight of night number one, Rhea Ripley pinning Charlotte Flair to win the WWE SmackDown Women's Championship. This was a tremendous match, and this was arguably one of the best matches I've ever seen out of the women's division in WWE history. There were some really good matches in NXT back in the old days, and Becky and Charlotte have had some really good matches, but I thought Rhea and Charlotte, who, by the way, in the 2020 pandemic WrestleMania, they really stole the show where they had the best match. Rhea's a much better worker now. This is, again, three years later that they've had this match. She's a better worker. She's got a better defined personality. Um, she's definitely the heel in all of this. 
And I thought that she and Charlotte just tore the house down. That was a phenomenal match. I give those girls all the credit uh, in the world. And then the highlight of the night was Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens defeating the Usos to win the undisputed tag title. And we talked about this, that that massive pop, sending the fans home happy, right? I mean, it, it was all set up for Owens and Zayn to finally beat the Usos after whatever, their six, 700 days of being the champs and all this kind of stuff, one of the longest tag team championship runs in history. It was all set up because I really did think that the bloodline was going to walk out with none of the titles when all was said and done. So check number one, night number one, Usos lose the tag team titles to Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. So everything was setting itself up that, okay, this all makes sense and it's setting itself up. Night number one was spectacular. Night number two, okay, Brock and Omos had a pretty good match. It was quick. The right guy won. It was some big spots. You saw the big F5 from Brock. Got no problem with that. I, the right guy went over, and certainly almost was not going to pin Brock Lesnar was always said and done. Then the match that stole the night on night number two was Drew McIntyre, Sheamus, and Gunther for the Intercontinental Championship. And when I tell you that this was physically one of the most intense matches I have ever seen, I promise you that there were plenty of potatoes that were thrown in that match. But I can tell you this. It didn't matter who won. Gunther won, and he's the right guy. Again, they need to put the belt or keep the belt on him for a long time. He's that good of a worker. And if you want to bring back the allure of the Intercontinental Championship, rather than changing belts all the time, let Gunther have like a two-year run with the Intercontinental Championship and, and slay all the different people that come up. But when I tell you that none of those guys came out a winner because – Sheamus's chest was all bloodied up from all the chops. Gunther was all black and blue through his chest. I mean, those guys were landing haymaker after haymaker, and the chops and the physicality of that match, that's what stole the show. Like, that was physically one of the most intense matches I've ever seen that wasn't a shoot, that wasn't two guys actually fighting uh, in the ring. So kudos to those guys for the, the great match that those – guys had. Bianca versus Asuka was also a really good match. Um, Bianca winning the, uh, retaining, I should say, the title. That was the right call. <sighs> the the funniest thing was Shane O'Mac. And listen, Shane O'Mac came back. He was going to wrestle the Miz. They had it all set up. And then Shane tears his quad on a leapfrog and he's injured and hurt. And he went down in a heap. And it's funny because Vince McMahon in the 2005 Royal Rumble, when he came out to confront, um, who was it, John Cena and, um, um, oh gosh, uh, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember now. But uh, when he came out to when he came out to confront John Cena and all that and restart the Royal Rumble match, he tore both of his quads. So Shane only tore one quad, but he he tore both of his quads. And look, it, they did a good job of just kind of filling in the gaps and just doing what they had to do. Snoop Dogg dropped an elbow on a people's elbow on the Miz, and they didn't kind of know what to do, but they made the best of that situation. So they did a good job of improvising um, with uh, with all of that. Edge and the Demon, Finn Balor and the Hell in a Cell, I didn't like this match 
too many hats on it. You, you got a hell in a cell match, right? Why do you need tables and kendo sticks and chairs and all this kind of stuff? And then they threw a ladder at Finn Balor and he busted his head open and they had to stop the match to literally legitimately bring the doctors in to look at the cut on his head because he was just gushing blood at that point. So they had to stop the match. Why do you have a hat on a hat? I, I don't really understand that. And then we get to the main event, Roman Reigns and Cody Rhodes. And I really thought that this set itself up for Cody winning the titles. They have their WrestleMania moment where he's holding up the two belts. He's going to be the face of the company. Roman is expected to take a extended vacation or just be off television for an extended period of time. And we don't get the moment. Roman pins Cody Rhodes with the help of Sokoa, Solo Sokoa. He interfered in the match. The Usos interfered. Okay, it was plenty of gaga to go along with it. But I didn't like that end result. And I, I understand. Listen, I love Roman Reigns, but that was not the right finish. You had all of this buildup to get that moment, and you will never recapture that moment again. You will never be able to replicate what that moment would have been with the Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens winning the tag titles, and then Cody having that moment where he holds up both of the belts. I thought they missed a real opportunity there to really make Cody Rhodes the face of the franchise. You know, moving forward, he'd take on all comers. I just thought that that was a big letdown. I love Roman. This is not about Roman. He's one of my favorite performers, and he has been magnificent. He and Paul Heyman have been magnificent through this whole run. But that was a really disappointing ending to see Cody Rhodes not hold up the belts and get that babyface moment. And again, I guess they want to go for the thousand days of a title, but who cares? What difference does it make? Nobody's going to remember all of that kind of stuff when all is said and done. All right, well, thank you so much for making Hitting Hard with John Chuck for your first listen every day. Make sure you make Locked On Sports today your second listen, the biggest stories of the day, instant reactions, big game recaps. Take of the day, available Odyssey, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast from. We ask you to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube, wherever you listen to your podcast. Get the latest episodes of Hit and Hard as soon as they are available. And then give me a follow on my personal Twitter page, at JMCH316. Back with you tomorrow. This has been Hit and Hard with John Chuckery, Locked on Sports Atlanta. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.